Thank you. Let's head to the book of Nehemiah. To the book of Nehemiah. Thank you, sir. We are studying, if you've just joined with us, this book, going kind of going section by section, paragraph by paragraph. We're headed towards chapter 2, going into chapter 3. Let's, let's just finish up where we were last week and, and remind ourselves, if you're visiting with us, background to the book. Nehemiah is written hundreds of years ago. The story is set where Nehemiah was, work, was a Jewish individual. His family, his ancestors, just a couple generations before him, they were involved with the government of Babylon coming in, ransacking Jerusalem on three different occasions, coming in and then finally the third, destroying it and taking the people into captivity. The Babylonians were in charge up until 539. Then they were conquered by the Persians and the Persians had a whole different way of dealing with lands that they were in charge of. Instead of mixing the people or taking the people out, they would let the people be in their land and then they would let themselves have some self-autonomy, but it was limited, kind of like what the Romans did when the time of Christ. And so the Persians, with that in mind, allowed some of the Jews to go back in. They start resettling the area, and after being in captivity 70 years, just as God had predicted, they end up going back in and starting to rebuild. First thing they built was the temple, because that's their national identity, that's their religious identity. The next thing they started to rebuild was they wanted to rebuild the city in its, uh, in all of its glory, but they were stopped because some of the surrounding tribes and some of those who were jealous of them that years before the Jews had dominated them, they didn't want the Jews to rebuild. So they sent a letter to the Persian king and they said they're planning rebellion again. Check out their history. They were, very, they were a rebellious people nearly a hundred years ago. You've got it. You can't let them rebuild. And so he checks the history from Babylon and others and finds out they did rebel. And the Babylonians came on three different occasions because the people had rebelled. So he stops the building. In the Persian, um, the Persian mindset, the way they governed, they had what was called the laws of the Medes and Persians. It was one of the few in history that did this. If there was a decree, you could not undo the decree. And so they got around it sometimes by all of a sudden making a new decree that would alter things a little bit, but typically you did not undo a decree. Well, the king had decreed no building. Nehemiah is working in the king's court, and uh, as he's in the king's court, he is the cupbearer. He is the in charge of security. He's an advisor. He keeps the king's appointment. He understands the system. And so he hears from his brother how bad things are in Jerusalem, that it's devastated, they haven't been building, that the land has been basically just, you know, the people are, are in <coughs> dire straits. He wants to go to the king and say, can we undo your decree from 12 years ago? And so he's praying for four months and he finally has the opportunity. The king, he asks the king, can I go back? Can I rebuild? And the way he asks is very, very tactful. How do you deal with a difficult boss? Tremendous story. Okay, but what happens is the king lets him go, go back. And he heads back and when he gets there, one of the things he does when he gets there is he spends three days and does absolutely nothing but just, we, we don't know, it, just nothing. But then after the third day he starts going about and he investigates, he tours, he goes around the entire city and then shortly thereafter he gathers the people and when he gathers them he announces the plans. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild the city walls. That's where we need to start. We need to have our perimeter before we can work inside. We've got to protect ourselves. And so he rallies the people to work, which is an amazing feat. And they do it in 52 days, which is amazing, considering they don't have equipment we have. And uh, they're, they're being opposed. As soon as he announces this, there's opposition from some of those local leaders, local tribal leaders who aren't Jewish, who are standing in the crowd 
And so they start speaking. They say, you rebel. You're, you know, what dare you try to do this? And so Nehemiah has this huge job. Now what we talked about is he, different, different facets. He paused, thought through, planned, okay, he wasn't irrational or, or rash in any way, and so the whole idea is that pause at times to think through whatever project you're doing, to count the cost. And during those four months that he was praying about this before he asked the king, he did a lot of homework, found out what he would need, who he needed to talk to, all the, de- the documents. He probed deeply to get the facts firsthand. Okay, and get the information. Yeah, have you ever had a situation where your kids are telling you a story and they said this happened and you need to probe deeply to get all the facts? Yes, no? Okay, sometimes you probe and you find out, well, the way my kid was saying it really wasn't the way it happened. Okay, and so it's important to probe deeply at times. The um, planning thoroughly we talked about, presenting plans uh, openly when the time is right. There is a certain time when things should be said and a certain time when things shouldn't be said. That includes plans, preparations, details. I can't help but think this morning with a situation that we're dealing with right now behind the scenes with somebody with a death. Um, I want to tell you the name so you can pray for him, but it isn't appropriate to tell you, Correct? Because of family. There's times where certain things aren't appropriate to say at a certain point. Isn't that Matthew when we're dealing with church situations where somebody is being confronted? There's, a, there's an appropriateness. You keep things private until it reaches a certain level. And so we understand that. He persisted in the task despite the criticism that was there. We talked about that briefly. We're going to get a lot more into this. How do you deal with uh, people who are attacking you and accusing you? And we'll talk more about that in the next couple chapters. Because it comes more more um, focal, uh, focused, so he does one thing: he keeps on pointing everybody to God, his enemies, his friends. He says, "Okay, God's in it." Now, what we stopped at last week was this: we said, you know, good planning it has several facets to it. If you're planning something from the book of uh, Nehemiah, who is Quite frankly, Nehemiah is a businessman. He's a government leader. And so in his practical outworking, there's a lot of lessons here that say, okay, how do we plan things? How do we plan a move? How do we plan a purchase? How do we plan um, a career? How do we plan, you know, some outreach ministry? Okay, things of that sort. Get your options figured out. Count the costs. Taking the long look. All these are involved. Okay, when I, we've talked about this a couple times, trying to be a problem solver, not just a fault finder. It's very easy for all all of us to find, why isn't this being done? Whoa, look at that. That should be taken care of. But finding a solution, not just say, pointing out the difficulties or something that's not being done. And so it often takes thinking. Here's where we stopped last time. We stopped with the idea of thinking outside the box. Nehemiah does it. Nehemiah has to talk to a leader who he's going to be basically saying, I want you to admit that a decree you made 12 years ago wasn't the best decree. Now, how do you get somebody to do something who, by virtue of his society, he doesn't change his mind, and by virtue of history, he, he made a ruling because the Jews are not a, <clears throat> not a um, good testimony, good reputation. And so he has to deal with a boss who this boss thinks he's never wrong, and he's going to basically be saying, undo what you did. And so there's, he's got to think outside the box. Let, let me see if I can give you a story to just chew on for a little bit, okay? What would you do in this case, okay? Thinking outside the box is the idea. There's a poor farmer. He's a tenant farmer. The landlord is very greedy. He's behind in his payments, and the landlord wants the money paid, or I'm going to cast you into jail, 
Okay, here's our scenario. Here's our story. But the landlord now offers to this man, he says, you have a very lovely daughter. I am attracted to her. I will cancel your debt if your daughter marries me. Okay? So you have this, this you know, this terrible, you know, gentleman that the daughter is basically be putting between a rock and a hard place. Marry me, I cancel the debts. If you don't marry me, your dad goes to jail. And uh, he says, okay, she's hesitating. He says, I'll, let, let's let providence be involved in this. We will pick up two stones here in the pathway. And we'll pick up a black one, we'll pick up a white pebble, we'll put them in this bag that I'm holding, and then you, daughter, you get to pick one of the stones. If you pick the black stone, you have to marry me. I'll cancel the debts, okay? But we'll let this be divine leading here. And he says, if you pick up the white stone, I'll still cancel the debts, but you don't have to marry me. So you got a 50-50 chance picking out the stone. If you refuse to draw any stone out, your dad's going to jail right away. So here's your choices. And the daughter agrees out of love for her father. She agrees. She says, I'll do it. Okay? You'll pick up the two stones. However, she sees the man, and he's standing amongst his friends, bend down. <coughs> he picks up two pebbles. She thinks. It appears that he picks up two black pebbles and sticks them in the bag. What should she do? How should she handle it? If she immediately says, you're a crook, okay, which he is, if she immediately accuses him before his friends, he's going to, he's going to be retaliate. Her dad's going to jail, okay? So she thinks through that, wait a minute, here's my options, okay? If I refuse to draw, he's going to jail. If I call out the landowner and embarrass him in public, my dad's still going to jail, what do I do? Is there some way she can turn the scenario, the situation, to a positive end, thinking outside the box? Me, my first thought is, you're, you know, you're a dirty scumbag, okay, and to call them out. Is it always wisest to call somebody out? Okay, so, um, in, front, in front of others and public. So, what should she, what would you do? Ponder it for a second. Ponder it if there's some way. You've got to think outside the box. And remember, we gave you this, uh, this illustration last week. Thinking outside the box, four lines or less, connect these. In a, continuous, in a continuous line, connect them together, four lines or less, and uh, with, you know, with just, without picking up the pencil. And some of you were fooling with it. Some of you said, I got five, six. You know, uh, I can do it in one. Okay, on a couple different ways, by thinking outside the box. Here you can do it with your, you know, your less than four lines. You, you, you can get it done that way. Or here's your one line. Nobody said how wide the line has to be. Okay, <laughs> thinking outside the box. Okay, thinking outside the box. Nobody said the line had to be straight. Okay, never said that. That was an assumption. Okay, so thinking outside the box at times, what do we do? What, is the, what would you do in this situation, thinking outside the box? How should the gal handle it? Okay, and then reach in after you fainted. Reach in and pull it out, and he still has two pebbles in the bag to show you. But he'd have to, he'd have to reveal himself. He'd have to reveal himself. Okay, what'd you have, Joe? Do what? Change the meaning? Yeah, he's probably not going to do that at that point since he's already set up to it. Okay, yes, ma'am. Grab both. 
and show everybody? You're calling them out. You're calling them out. Yeah, I know you can't argue, but you're calling him out. How, do you, how does she save her dad? Again, okay. Okay, here's, here in the story, what she does is she picks up a stone out of the bag. She drops it immediately by accident. Oh, no. And it blends in, obviously. And then she says, no problem. There's one stone left in the bag. Whatever that stone is, Okay, then I picked up the opposite, and there's only going to be what stone left inside, a black, um, the black one, so that must mean in front of everybody, she picked up the white one. Man saves face, she gets off from marrying the dude, her dad gets free, thinking, uh, and again, you could come up with other things, you could faint and do the same thing, okay? You could do whatever. Okay, the point is thinking outside the box. Now, I'm not quick on I, I couldn't do something. Do you remember the story I told you a few weeks ago? Uh, my neighbor's nephew was in Allentown area. Do you remember the story? Driving and pulled up to a stop sign, and, uh, and they were between uh, therapy calls, doing some type of you know, house calls, doing therapy for individuals. And somebody ran up, jumped on the hood of the car, rolled off and said, you hit me, you hit me. Do you remember this story? And they were like, what in the world? And a whole crowd of people gathered and said, you hit that person, you hit that person, we saw it. You know, how do you get out of that situation? Remember the story I told you that the fellow thought real quick, pulled out his badge that he uses when he goes to home, homes to do the, uh, the therapies, pulled it out and said, just a minute, I'm a, I'm a um, what do you call him, police officer off-duty. Off-duty police I'm an off-duty police officer. Everybody stand there. I want to get your names. And everybody scattered, okay, immediately. Thinking quickly, okay, that, that, I, I'm not like that. Some of you are. But still, if you think outside the box, what do we do? What do we do? Let, let's, let's remember these few things, okay? A few helpful steps in planning, organizing, dealing with difficult situations. Identify the problem. We talked about this last week. Too often we're caught up with there's a problem or a symptom of a problem. Okay, identify the real basic problem. Prioritize the problems at hand. You, sometimes when you're dealing with, okay, you have a problem in your home. You're trying to deal with something with your kids. Usually there's going to be a sequence and it's going to take a while to deal with some of the issues. Okay, and so you have to identify which one are we going to deal with first, second, third, fourth, and handle it. Uh, try to define what you're doing. And then once you define it, stay there. Okay, this is what we're dealing with. Don't get sidetracked. This is what we're dealing with, but make sure you identify it. And uh, you have to do, to do all this, you have to ask the right questions, which means go, to the, go instead of finding the fault and who, who made the mistake, why did it happen? Okay, uh, talk to the right people. Okay, go to the right sources. Get the right information. Too often we can get the, we get information too often from people who think just like us or who only agree. Problem at work. Problem at work, something major. Be careful that you get a blend of different, different input, not just the same people who are going to be a, you know, as critical or in your limited field. Okay? Uh, get the hard facts. Sometimes there's facts we don't want to hear. I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. Get involved with the so- problem-solving process. Is what's my options? Okay, what's a long-term solution? Here's where we ended last week. Your kids, their room is a nightmare. Okay, and so it's really, really messy, and you say they don't put their clothes away. You have to ask the question, why is it happening? Here's where we left last week. The kids, yeah, they're kids. You, you could, here's an option you could say. The kids are kids. Kids can't help but being, you know, messy. 
You could say, my kids, I tell them, but they're just rebellious. It's my kids don't listen to me. They're just bad, bad, bad kids. You could say, okay, um, this, this might be some of the information that's hard facts that you don't like. What pattern are you giving them for the rest of the house? Maybe if they walk into your bedroom, they see that the same issue arises there. Monkey see. Yeah, okay. But that might be a hard fact. Hard fact. There's not enough room for all their stuff. That's a hard fact. There's too much stuff. That's a hard fact for the kids. Okay? Or it could be we haven't trained them. That's a hard fact. Oh, by the way, if we're going to have to deal with training, that's going to take a series of sequences. It's not going to happen overnight. And so what are your options? Now, okay, if the, I've got to figure out why it's happening. What are my options? Well, they're, they're kind of go like this. I could get rid of the kids. Okay? It's not a really best option, okay? Um, I could have them go without clothes, okay? That is an option. Again, it's probably, no, because you're going to go to jail, okay? That's, you're, you're not providing for them. You could have them wear the same clothes repeatedly, and some of you are thinking they already do, okay? That's some of the problems. Okay, now getting into reality, less stuff, is that an option? Okay, having a bigger room for them. Okay, now that may be a hard option, but it could be an option that has to be considered. Providing more closed storage space. Maybe some of, the, some of the walls need to go with something that's a higher storage area. Maybe a harder option. It could be that we're at the point where because of the number of kids, whatever, we have to start considering a bigger house or spreading the kids out in the area or train them by degrees in dealing with it. Um, so you've got to figure out, okay, what's my option? I'm not trying to be silly. These are real, fa- real situations, and sometimes people just get stuck in the, uh, in, the, in the symptom that the kids aren't listening, the kids aren't listening. Well, maybe they don't have an ability to change because there's just too much for too little space. Does that ever happen in our day and age? Okay, so thinking it through and, and trying to set up. Okay, here's one. You're regular, this individual is regularly late for work. They're grabbing the breakfast usually as they run out the door, and then they hit the trains in Lebanon, and they're late. Okay, and it happens every day. Or they get behind the bus. Okay, do you, do you have buses that come to your area? And they, I can tell you, it's 7.03 every morning the bus is coming down this street. So I either have to do one of two things if I don't want to stay behind the bus. Get before the bus or wait for a few minutes and wait a couple minutes and make sure it's at 7.05, you know, that I miss getting frustrated by the bus. Okay, it's one of the two. So identify the reasons for your problem. Okay, what's the, what's the reasons for your problem? Oh, it could be. Now, this, the, I'm using real, solu- real conversations here that uh, somebody's response. My job requirements are just too strict that they have a time I have to be there. They hired you from 8 to 5. Yeah, but they're just, they're too picky. They want me to be there at 8. Because they hired you to be there at 8. But their solution was, the, the businessman has to change their hours. I don't think that works for most situations. But, okay, we take too long for breakfast, preparing, eating. That could be a real, real thing, okay? Maybe you're eating this breakfast as you run out the door because you've taken too much you're doing too elaborate of a breakfast. Traffic is the issue, okay, which I could blame the bus, but, you know, not up early enough to do all I need to do. That probably most of us would say, uh, identifying the reasons, which one would you typically pick? Yeah, you probably. So what's a reasonable option? 
oh, yeah, okay, you can move closer to work, okay? You could streamline the breakfast. You could just simply get up earlier and leave earlier, okay? As opposed to going to the boss and saying, you're being unreasonable that I have to be here at 8 o'clock. Okay, here's, here's one. You're in a business. Your sales are down, okay? Whatever product you're selling, okay? You are part of the management team. You got to figure out. So you ask yourself, why? Why could sales be down, Take any product, okay? Why could sales go down? No, what'd you say? Nobody wants your product. It's outdated. Selling VCR tapes, sales will be down, okay? Even if you liked them, sales are down. Somebody was over here. The economy, okay? Could be it. Anything, any other reasons? Of what? Okay, could be the product, that's a hard fact if you're the inventor, right? If you're, a, if you're going to Shark Tank, you think it's going to sell, right? Do they all sell? No, okay? Any other reasons? Prices is too, price is too high for the product. Could be the advertisement. It could be, let me throw one other thing. It could be that your sales per- personnel aren't doing a real good job. So you can, you can just put down all these things, but it, you have to, it, you know, if you're, if you're there, you've got to be honest that maybe you've got to cut your profit margin so, on each item so that you could sell more item and basically your profit, mar- your profit increases by volume of sales rather than I'm going to make a million off each one. And so there's, it's, it's, a, it's not complicated. It could be your employees aren't doing a good job because they could be unhappy employees. Now, that's an amazing thought. How could they be unhappy if they work for you or me? They should be counting this all glory and joy. Yeah, this is like heaven on earth working for me. Okay. Um, So, you know, there's options. And so you would have to sit there as a management team and say, okay, maybe we need to improve our product. Maybe we need to adjust. Maybe it's several of these things. But you have to work with it and say, okay, we've got to take the hard look and try to figure out where we're going here and not just blame it. Oh, and by the way, could the economy be the, the, one of the issues? Yes. But could it be easy to just blame the economy and do nothing? Sure. Okay, and so that hard look. And, that, and this happens in parenting. It happens in marriage relationships. There's difficulties, and it's easy to blame outside stuff, okay? My kids are, we have issues with my kids because the friends they hang around with. That could be a contributing factor, okay? Could there be other factors or options that should be employed? There could be. Maybe the hard look is, the hard look is, I've driven my kids away, I've not been respectful to my kids. I mean, how do you drive kids away in a relationship? What's that? Fault find, you're a fault-finding parent. Anything, is that the only way we drive people away from us? You treat other people better than you do your own kids. Okay? What, can it be called nagging? Can it be called a hypocrisy? Those are taking the hard looks at times and saying, wait a minute, if, I, if some of my relationships are struggling, I can blame it all, and, and sometimes it's legitimately true. 
it's other people that have done it. But sometimes if I'm, if I'm looking at the situation, I can't just stop and say, it's everybody else, surely I cannot be at fault. If I'm going to take a biblical approach to dealing with problems, one of the first places I have to look is at myself. What have I brought to the table in this relationship, in this situation? What have I brought to the table in my financial situation? What have I done to contribute to the problem? It's not just my employer's problem. It's not just Trump's problem. It could be the way I'm handling it. Oh, it's not just the credit card company's problems because they charge too much interest, which I've heard that. If the credit card companies wouldn't charge so much interest, I wouldn't have all this debt. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did you get the debt from the interest in the first place? Over-purchasing. Okay. Well, no, we needed the stuff. Um, look at the, take some of the hard facts. So, in the, just, let's, let's do this planning, this organizing, the Nehemiah. And by the way, did Nehemiah take and say, so a lot of the problems in Jerusalem is our fault? Did he do that? Read the prayer in chapter 1. We have sinned. We have rebelled. And so he took the hard look. Okay, here's just some helpful hints. In dealing with issues, problems, tough situations, get the best people around you to give input. That doesn't mean, the best people does not mean the people who agree with you. Okay, now they might, but too often when we're trying to get input, we look for affirmation, not advice. Or we look for affirmation, not accountability. List all the possible clauses. List all your solutions. We mentioned this. And then from, you know, then try to categorize, okay, prioritize what's the most reasonable, least reasonable. Implement a solution, okay? One that, that is going to, and it may take time, but implement something. Do something. Set a timetable of when we're going to implement the change. We've got to do some sales changes. Let's set a timetable of when this is going in place. We want our employees to, you know, take a different approach. Well, they, you know, I've got to train them. I've got to deal with it. Got to, I want the kids to be able to, you know, learn certain aspects. Okay, here's my procedure. A, B, C, and take them in one, one situation at a time. Evaluate. Evaluate the solutions. Where have we gone? What are we doing? Is it improving? And then set some guidelines so as not to recur the problem. So you have some of those basics set up. Nehemiah is doing this. He's evaluating the problem. He's going to come before the people and say, I have a solution and we're going to have to work through it. In working through it, he is going to have more problems arise. He's going to have to deal with those issues. He's going to keep the people accountable and they, they get to their successful mode of building in 52 days. Let's talk about building. Let's go to chapter 3 and let's read a list of names that is going to sound very, very odd and basically to some of us it's going to be meaningless if we read it this way. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with the brethren of the priests and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it. They set up the doors of it. Even unto the tower of Maah they sanctified it to the tower of Hananiel. Next to him builded the men of Jericho. Next to them builded Zachar the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. And next to him repaired Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshul... And that's a big name. The 
next unto him repaired Zadok, the son of uh, Banna. And then by the time I keep on reading all this, my mind is drifting, but I'm saying the words through my eyes, but my mind isn't getting it because I'm thinking, big name, big name, this is boring, it's just names, next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. And I don't know what a fish gate is, I don't know what a dung gate, well, I know, yeah, I have an idea. Um, I don't know who Tekoa is or where Tekoa came from. And for most of us, it's a meaningless chapter. But we know that all inspiration is given by God. So there's got to be something out of this. So as I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading, and I'm trying to figure out and going, yeah, yeah, there's got to be something out of this. And so I get down to this point. I'm kept on reading and thinking about all these other thoughts, and I get down to verse 32 and think, I got to get something out of it. Between the going up at the corner under the sheep gate repaired the goldsmith and the merchants. What do I get out of that? Go shopping. Okay, because it said the merchants were there. So, God has just spoken to my heart to go to Walmart. Okay. Okay. What do we, what do, we do with this passage? Let, let's do a big picture, okay? And, not, and I'm not trying to be irrespectful or disrespectful to the Word of God, but for us approaching it, it's a tough chapter. It's one of those that we, we didn't get anything that came popping off the page because there's a lot of names. Let's put it in context. 52 days. They do this job. It's an amazing. These are the, this is the team he's working with. It's amazing because there's no miracle. There's no angels. There's nothing like that mentioned. There's no, you know, help at night. All of a sudden, they woke up in the morning and the wall was half built. None of that happens during this time. They don't have any modern equipment like you and I would do. They're doing things by hand to the best of their ability. There's not been any, any enthusiasm to address this. There's rubble that's been there, and there, it's going to discourage them partly through the problem, uh, through the project, that they run into it. Work is done is what I did get out of this in the last phrase. Some of the people who are working are not construction people. Their, their area of expertise was selling, not building. Their area of expertise was goldsmithing, not laying concrete. Some of the areas of expertise we're going to read about, there's the apothecaries, those who deal with medicine. They're not usually using mortar. Okay, but he uses these people. So there's got to be something here that he is doing this project, it's getting done, and there's opposition to it. And how does it work? Okay, and so a little bit of background information, a little bit of just lay it out, and let's figure out what we've got here. What he does is he basically divides the chapter this way, that he, he works right around the building. He's going to give you details, and as he's giving details, and that's all this chapter is, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff telling you where they worked and what they did. And it has, a, it has some interesting principles and practices that can be drawn out of it, but they're not going to hop off the page and say, thus saith the Lord in this one verse, you're going to have to do a little bit of and a little bit of meditating on it. Okay, what's interesting is the sheep gate, for instance. He mentions the sheep gate. Well, we understand the sheep gate is called the sheep gate because that's where the sheep went into the city. Why did the people have a special gate for the sheep that there were so many sheep going into Jerusalem? Because it's sacrifice. The sheep gate is located near the temple. Duh. Okay, this works together. And who are the people that are assigned to build the sheep gate? The priest. Oh, wait a minute. What does that identify to you? Okay, ownership of the project. They had, the priests were assigned to this spot because, yeah, this is, what, this is where they worked. They have an interest in this. If they have an interest in that spot, how are they going to work? How do people typically work? Okay, if I have a vested interest in this, let me rephrase it, okay? 
you're going to be doing the painting, okay, uh, of, the, of the house, okay? If it's your house that's being painted, are you a little bit more peculiar than a total stranger if you were asked to paint their house and you're not being paid for it? Typically, typically, okay? If, uh, if you're putting the bed together, okay, and it, you know, the directions are a little bit weird, are you going to want to make sure that this bed is put together totally right if you're sleeping in it? Okay, not to be selfish, but does it work this way? Okay, if there's a vested interest, okay, they're going to work. They're going to, they're going to have a greater incentive to get it done ASAP. And so we have this. We have the fish gate. It's by the marketplace. The people who are mentioned are the people that come from the village of Tekoa 10 miles away. Why do the Tekoaites come to Jerusalem at all when they live 10 miles away? What draws them to Jerusalem? The market. They're probably sellers or buyers. They have a vested interest in it. The West Wall, okay? Now, this one's the odd one. The West Wall is being built, okay? You have the old gate. You have goldsmiths, apothecaries. You have young women and nobles from Jerusalem building. Why? I don't know, okay? There's, there's a South Wall, okay? The South Wall is called... Now, this one has an interesting feature to it. The South Wall has in there the Valley Gate and they have the Dung Gate, Okay, we all know what the dung gate is for. Okay, that's an obvious. What's the valley gate? They both led to the same area. If you are here in Jerusalem, excuse me, you're up high, and right down here is the valley of Hinnom, or Henna. In the New Testament, it's called Gehenna. Okay, do you remember what that is? It's the dump. It's where all the waste out of the city goes and there's perpetual what happening down there. The fire, the, the critters, the maggots. Jesus uses that as an illustration of what? Of hell. Okay. And so the dung gate is, and the valley gate, they're headed down this direction into this dump area. Who wants to build the dump? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're all gonna, we're gonna raise our hands and say, I want to work at the dung gate. That sounds really noble. Irony is, look at the chapter, a nobleman chooses and volunteers to do it. Does that tell you anything about a heart? Okay. Um, here we go. East wall, the fountain and water gates, okay, and ancient water supplies, the horse gates. And he tells us a little bit, and we're just giving you data, okay. Horse gate is where the Calvary would be. The east gate led out to the Mount of Olives. The muster gate is where troops would be there gathering for review during the era of the kings. And so there's different things happening. Now, when he starts talking about the people who worked at these other areas, there's some data that I just want to give you quickly. It's nothing profound, but I think there's some principles here that are seen throughout the entire passage. I think he is an expert in getting people to cooperate, getting people to work together. Just like some of you have to get relatives to work together or co-workers or friends to work together on a project. Here's some lessons on cooperation that you get. In this book, he li- in this chapter, he lists 75 different people's names. Of those 75, there is in there 15 different groups, noblemen, apothecaries, uh, goldsmith, or merchants. And so he has 75 different people. By the way, what does that tell you about Nehemiah and his knowledge of his team? Anything? Okay. He knew the people. He not only knew who was working with him, he knew where they worked, and he knows how they work. Okay, 
and aware. Does, does that ever play in leadership, calling people by their names and recognizing the jobs that they have done? Yes, no? Is that beneficial in a factory? If the owner of the factory comes out and says, hey, by the way, how are you doing today? And thank you for doing, and you, they go, they know my name. I'm more than a social security number. Okay? The, uh, the idea here is this. He used all types of people. Okay? He is not prejudiced or biased in getting people to say, okay, I want you to contribute. I want you to work with me. As long as they were willing to work, he gave them the opportunity to contribute to this project. He didn't say, well, you're too dumb to do this. If you want to work, you can help. Um, doing little things. Doing little things with, your, with kids, grandkids. They want to help. Are there certain things they cannot do? Yes? Okay. Are there certain things to encourage them to learn a work ethic, to scale down and let them contribute? Is there wisdom in that? Instead of saying, go away, you're a bother. Go away, you're a bother. Get out of my way. I can do it much better without you here. Can you do it better without them there? Typically you can. But what does that teach the kids if we don't let them contribute? Okay? Then why should they contribute later? You're already going to have enough trouble when they turn a certain age to get them to work. Okay? That's going to be an issue later on. Why train them that they can't contribute? Why not train them that they could with supervision and at a certain level and encourage that mentality? He even entrusted unskilled laborers with contributing, goldsmith, things like that. Um, when we do the work projects, when we go on missions trips with the teens, in my mind, one of the things that's a helpful tool is get them to do projects, okay? We go to, let's say, Portugal. We're going to Portugal. We're laying concrete. How many of the teens in the typical 8-, 10-person team have probably ever laid concrete before? Zero, okay? Usually, when they hear about it, it's like, okay, I've never done it before. That's okay. You can do this. You can do this. It's not going to be perfect. We're going to do our very best. It's in a rustic camp setting, which allows us not to be perfectionists, okay? And so getting them, and what's amazing is how many of them can get excited about a project that they've never done something before, but they're allowed to do. By the way, usually when we do these work projects, here's the funny part. Usually, boy or girl, which group wants to do more of the manual labor? The girls. The girls, because they want to show the guys, that they can do it, and usually they try to do more and better than the guys. They want to carry more rock. Okay, fine, go ahead. This is like, this is like, this is like, this reminds me, when I'm in Portugal or in Arizona, it reminds me of playing Tom Sawyer in the painting of the fence. Okay, let's build this up. Let's get them to pay us to do the project. And it works, human nature. But, they, but what's, the, what's the attitude usually by the end? We did this. We did this. Okay? Now, again, there are certain things they're not allowed to do. Okay? I usually don't let them use the play with the electricity. Usually. In Portugal, no. You know, it's 220, so no, we don't. Yeah. Um, so what you do is you give people a sense of ownership. That's very important. In any, in any setting, giving them the ownership, there's coordination. He's an expert, not just cooperation, but coordination. Watch here. Okay, 28 times next to him, next to him, next to him. Here he goes. 
Okay, in this setting. He used many people, as many as were willing. He cut the people, the work down to size by using all the people. Okay, um, that whole idea of letting people contribute, putting their hands to it. He delegates the task. Important thought. He, uh, he knew the people knew, I should say, what they were to do, where they were to go to work. Is it true that it gets discouraging if you show up to work and you have to stand there? Or you don't know what to do? Then next time you're asked to come and help, what do you think? Why am I going to waste my time doing there and not contributing? Okay? He doesn't let that happen. He made sure, and I think this is critical, a uh, thought that to me has been, been you know, a major thought. Make sure supplies are ready. When people show up, they can do the work. Okay? Not just stand there and say, okay, well, we have to run. Did you ever help somebody move who never packed? Oh, a lot of your faces are going, oh. Okay. That means the next time that person asks you to help them move, you're probably going to find something else to be doing that day. Okay, have you ever had that happen? You get there and nothing is packed. So how does the project go? It's really slow and really horrible. Okay, make sure the supplies, or, or, and I've had this happen a few times, you get there and say, we'll help you out. I have just a couple hours and get there and they say, we haven't gotten the boxes yet. Where are the boxes? Well, we have to go and find some place that has them. Okay. Hey, if we're coming to help you to move, now this, this is my selfish thought. If we're coming to help you move, you should be ready for the move. Yes, no? You should have, if we're helping to pack the boxes, you should at least have the boxes ready to go. Okay? It's just something so simple because does that affect friendships? Oh, yeah, let's be noble. Let's be noble and say, no, it didn't bother me. Yeah, right. Okay. Those things, they, they make impact. Okay. And so having the work, making the assignments, he did it based on residency or interest. Why? What's the wisdom in assigning the priests? Well, hey, by the way, there's a couple of them. They lived by the wall, and that's the wall they build. Why is that so practical that he put them at that wall? They're going to make sure that wall is good. Because it's their protection. Anything else? That's it? They're going to maintain it? What about time frame? If I'm living there, is there any benefit to work right here in that day and age? What does that cut down on? Commuting? I know they have to walk, but does it help commuting-wise? Does it help? They have to eat. Okay, does it help in food preparation? There's a lot of little things that go into this that are, there, there's another area that I wanted to spend time on. It's commending. Why does he write all these names down? What does that tell you about him as an influence upon other people? What does that tell you about appreciation from his perspective? That he recorded them for eternity. Okay, he's giving credit where... Comment, commending people is huge. Let's, let's leave that. We need to discuss that because that's so important in commending and not criticizing, even though there's moments for being, having a, a good constructive criticism. This guy is given to commendation. Let's break there.